Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. WTF, welcome to it. You all right? Yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing for Thanksgiving? You, you keeping it tight? You laying low? You keeping it in-house? Like not, not people coming into the house? It's a weird thing that's happening on all levels in terms of how people seem to understand this virus. It seems kind of clear to me that they're figuring out how to treat it a little better, but that doesn't mean it's not a heinous, dangerous, erratic in terms of how it affects each individual bit of toxic viral contagion. And it's worse now than it's ever been. That's that's the odd thing. I mean, I think that's indicative of something. How's it going? Are you guys all right? I don't want the fucking virus. Today on the show, I talked to Johnny Flynn. Uh, he was he played David Bowie in the film that um, that I'm going to be in. That's opening soon. I believe it opens on Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Wednesday, November 25th, in theaters and on demand. The film Stardust with me and uh, Johnny Flynn. You might know him as a recording artist. He's, a, he's got several records people enjoy. and He was in the movie uh, Beast and in the movie Emma. He's on a television series called Lovesick. Um, and I talked to him today. It's an interesting thing about that movie. That uh, this sort of weird... It's, it's amazing to me what people get, how they direct their anger. You know, there was this immediate reaction to the initial promotion of this film from from people who were like Bowie, diehard Bowie nerds, worked up, upset that uh, they didn't think David wanted a movie about him. They didn't think uh, the estate didn't allow the music. But I'll tell you one thing about this movie. It's not a biopic. It's a little window into a period in time in David's life where he wasn't quite sure how, how he was going to do what he wanted to do or who he was necessarily. It's, a, it's an important crossroads in any creative person's life if they're conscious enough to, be, to know they're standing there. And I don't think any of us really picture David Bowie as being uh, insecure or unsure of himself or 
not really knowing how to take the next step creatively. But we should. It's one of those things where if you look at all the different decisions he made about his own character and personas and this and that, it would it would you know, when did that start? How did that start? What was the decision making process? This is sort of a a uh, a very engaged, uh, respectful exploration of that of that moment where David Bowie didn't know who David Bowie should be or who David Bowie was. It's called Stardust. It opens Wednesday, the 25th, this Wednesday, in theaters and in streaming. So uh, enjoy that. And I know a lot of the the holdouts, the Bowie loyalists who uh, refuse to believe that somebody who had a 50-year career putting things out into the world, allowing, spreading himself out to be judged and criticized and appreciated and celebrated and demanding a certain amount of recognition and admiration and understanding that uh, anybody should sort of take that up and say, well, I want to understand more. I want to I want to explore David Bowie in a piece of writing, a book, a record, a movie, public people. Public artists, especially great ones, are provocative. They're provocative to other artists who make stuff. This is one of those things. This is part of that stuff. Stardust is the name of the movie. But speaking of the uh, the plague and the fact that things, how things have changed, you remember how terrified we all were when it started and what we were doing, washing boxes, leaving boxes outside, washing vegetables, washing our hands, not going inside places, running in and out of places. We learned a few things about the disease, about the spread of it, about you know whether boxes were safe or how much we should clean things, surfaces and whatnot. But we've also learned since then that it's more contagious than we thought it was and that masks certainly help stop the spread or limit the spread of the contagion. But the bottom line is, whatever the case, however we saw it then, it's worse than it's ever been now. And people have slacked off because they've learned to live with the reality of it. But fortunately, most people have not had to learn to live with the disease itself. A great many people have had people in their families die or get the disease. But most people have not gotten the disease. And that is slowly changing. But the attitudes are not. I don't know if it's entitlement, self-centeredness, a lack of empathy, or just uh, giving zero fucks. But the reality is this, you don't know what it's going to do to you when you get it. There are people that assume, hey, I'm healthy. Doesn't matter, really. It may. There are people like, well, you know, Trump got treated with it. You can't have that treatment. But I'm guilty of it. This is the fucking problem. I'm guilty of it. Nobody can guarantee your safety if you're going to do things. You have to decide. You have to take your calculated risks that help you maintain your sanity. You don't want to lose your mind or get suicidal because of the fear of disease, but you do want to take care of yourself. But my point being is that people want to continue doing things they want to do. And they want to at least start doing things they want to do. And businesses want to start making their services available to people that want them. Whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a comedy club, whether it's a, a movie production, 
they're putting the risk on the individual. The people that are providing services, they know that they can't guarantee your safety. Nobody can guarantee anybody's safety, really. So it's on you to decide. So make sure you're straight with your mind and your heart in terms of the decisions you're making. And also, you have to remember that it's not all about you. That seems to be a very difficult thing for people, not Americans, just people, myself included. I'm inconvenienced. I'm making a choice to take a risk because I, I want to be able to do certain things. What if that puts a lot of other people at risk? I'm not, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's not who I am, but you will if you do this. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm not going to, it's, it's a reality. All right. Okay. I know. I know. That I think is what's at the core of most people's behavior right now and most people's rationalization and justifying. You poke at it just enough and you'll get like, I know, I know, I know it's dangerous. I get it. Look, we're all angry, man. It's important to take care of yourself, but it's important not to kill people with your lack of concern or irresponsibility. I meditated uh, this morning. I tried that out. You know, it was like it was a sit, you know, guided meditation. And uh, I did it. I did what they told me. So I did it and I'll do it again. And I'm going to keep doing it. Okay. I've made that decision. What a great, finally, finally, I've done, I'm doing something proactive, something people have told me to do for years that could make a difference in my life. Why do I fight that shit? Also, another word about Thanksgiving. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Is that what this is? Everybody who complains about their fucking families nonstop over the holidays, you don't have to go. You can just say, I can't because I don't want to die or kill you. So stop asking me to come. You know I shouldn't. I know. All right then, mom. Just tell dad, look, I I love you, but I'm not going to be there. And then you hang up that phone and go, oh my God. This is a gift. It's a gift. So Johnny Flynn is in the movie Stardust with me, plays David Bowie in his uh, Man Who Sold the World period. Uh, The movie opens this Wednesday, November 25th in theaters and on demand. And uh, I met him on the set, and uh, this is the first time we've really talked since we've done the movie. So this is uh, Johnny Flynn and me talking. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. 
I see your Instagram posts when you're doing the the live the guitar ones? stuff. Oh, the guitar. Well, yes, every now and then when you're just like ripping a a riff, a riff up and yeah, and I, that that post is weird to be there in the in the flesh. <laughs> well, I mean, I uh, you know obviously I'm not uh, as good a guitar player as you. That's not true. I do my bit. That's not true. I can't. I, it's true. I can't finger pick, man. I was listening to some of your records yesterday, oh. and I'm just sort of like, "Fuck, man! I gotta. Why can't I finger pick? You could I try. You could do no, it. What is it? How long does it take? You got to practice forever. I was lucky. I I was on like um, a theater tour when I was like 22, and yeah. there was one guy in the company who had a who who was like a master of the finger thing and i oh yeah we were touring all around the world and i was like this is my and i had I was for a year doing two shakespeare plays and i was quite bored a lot of the time and i just was like this yeah. is my this is my year i'm gonna do it this is my apprenticeship uh i'm gonna and be finger picking finger style master yeah but i i'm and I, now i'm finger style mediocre but but i did that year doing it so you can do your thumb separate from the other fingers i can do that but w- what I really wanted to be able to do was flip between the pick. So, you know, R- Richard Thompson has this style yes. and a couple of other yeah. people. I think Lightning Hopkins did it yeah. as well. Where they, instead of the, because the Doc Watson way is this disciplined thumb where you go boom, yeah. boom, 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 and then right, boom, right. boom, 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 boom. And, the, yeah. and if you can do the, if you do with a flat pick holding between your yeah. thumb and forefinger, what you would do with the thumb, and then you move everything down one. So you have to use your, your little finger, your pinky right. finger. Um, and that's what you did? That's what I do. Because it means I can tear into, you know, I can go into a, into a solo or, a, you know, when I'm with the right. band or whatever. Um, right. Or you could do big chords, big rhythm with the pick. Yeah. 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 I can flip it. back and forth. All right. Well, I'll get, you know, I'll get it. I'll you get could, it. You can you know do it. I mean? I, you could do it. I mean, I'm just... It's I've gotten I, I can do it a little bit and I'm a little better but not that style. When we when we jammed in um in wherever that was <laughs> Hamilton in Hamilton. Hamilton Ontario. Yeah, we were in a in the studio in um doing all the car stuff. Right. Yes. Right. And it was like <laughs> yeah. a it was like a refugee bunker. There was right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Everyone yeah. everyone could hear us. Um. Right. And uh. I was actually, I was really blown away by I thought shit I can't I can't keep up so oh uh, come on no worries. come on no That's you were very nice you were great you were great <laughs> um, That's why I'm talking about Peter Green for fun. I was like spreading the the gospel of Peter Green you, you sowed a seed there I was I was listening to him today think well thinking about you but you know, I that's gone really deep actually. I I and now I'm now I'm like a I'm like a um evangelicist for for tone. And he was right. the, he's the tone master, right? Oh, well um, that guitar, man, that guitar had the weirdest tones. I was noticing that too when I was listening to the records that at some point you know, cuz I had to g- kind of catch up on, you know, what you do, but there like as the records moved on, it seemed like your electric tone got dirtier. Yeah. Yeah. I But that was before the Peter Green business. <laughs> yeah. I definitely I was always into that stuff and to be honest, I think my blues I was a little bit sniffy about like Chicago blues cuz yeah. and I was a bit of a pure not 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 purist but like I was so into like old country blues, sure, and and that that finger stuff, and that you know like Charlie Patton and um, 
Robert Johnson, oh, yeah. Lonnie. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, all those guys. Sure. That, yeah. That, um, it, it took me a while to accept that because there's a bit more showmanship to it. And actually, reading the book that you gave me, uh, The Birth of Loud, I think it's called. Oh, that's great, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you gave... And, and thinking about the technology and and seeing like and just it allowed me actually to to go on a journey with that a bit so i've been i've been listening to um more bb king and that kind of stuff and thinking yeah this on i, the, on I, the, I uh, can do this now yeah it's a middle aged thing but <laughs> yeah. the, the the tone journey you're on the tone journey yeah i bought loads of pedals and everything i'm just yeah oh my god yeah it's, uh, yeah i'd stay away from the pedals just get yourself a vintage fender amp yeah i do i i have a i have a blues deluxe yeah they're the best yeah really yeah. nice <laughs> so all right well it's good to see you man you too you too so what did you think of the movie when you watched the whole movie our movie stardust i really liked it i mean i thought i thought it was really sweet right you know it's a it's a small it's a small right. film it's it's i'm it, getting so pissed off at the trolls about oh you know, my like, god <laughs> with the bowie family didn't want it and yeah. this is terrible it's like are you are, i can't even pay attention to it i feel no. bad you know, just it's just sort of like just shut up and don't see it if you don't want to see it. Yeah, it's not a biopic. No, it's a it's a movie about this weird little sliver in time. It's a dangerous um a dangerous attitude to have as well. It's a kind of cancel culture bullshit. Because you know, this the the movie is journalistic in tone and there's um an objectivity that I think Gabriel wanted by not being in bed with the estate. And not being disrespectful to the subject, but just having that authorial objectivity and being able to tell the right. story and they and it wanted. Was really, it was a movie about, uh, you know, artistic um, evolving as an artist yeah. and trying to sort of source the 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 kind of uh, impulses that Bowie had and, 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 and where his creativity came from uh, yeah. at an early age. It's yeah. not some sort of arcing thing. And also it's no. sort of a, a kind of an interesting buddy film yeah. when it comes down to you and me. Yeah. No, it's sweet. I like, I like road movies and um, you know, and we went on that, we went on that journey. We were hanging out there. It was cool. Yeah. Um, we were hanging out in that <laughs> horrible car in those horrible places, yeah. shooting very quickly yeah, with uh, do you remember Nick the the DP? Yeah, he's, he's eight. He's eighty now. He's you remember he's got what he only has hearing in one ear and he has one vocal cord. It was crazy. The yeah. eighty year old DP running around, but yeah. he's like the real deal, man. He shot John Lennon and he all that amazing. stuff. Yeah, he can make it look like the like the real thing, which is all of that is I think what makes it good. And and it's um, I was surprised how good it looked, dude. Because when you shoot something that quick. I'm just sort of like, are you sure you got it, dude? Yeah. Are you? Are we good? Yeah. Are we moving yeah. on here? I know. I think Gabriel. Held, and you did a great a job. Thanks. I talking. I, I was talking to somebody. I said, "Yeah, if I squinted, I could. You know, he looked like Bowie. Totally. <laughs> if I squint, it's like everything Bowie. was there. <laughs> Chubby Bowie. I didn't do enough coke. Um, well, that's yeah. good. I. How many kids you got now? Nine. Yeah. I, I three. <laughs> I I want I was I was going to apologize. I've you know it's funny something that's been bugging me. You know the day they came to set, and um, I don't know if you remember this, but I thought about it afterwards. We were having lunch, and I was yeah. like, you were sat on the table, and and we were coming into the room to find a place to sit, and you were there on your own in the table, and I was thinking, 
ah, Mark's on his lunch break. He, he, you know, he doesn't want to be bothered by these screaming. You know, I know what they're like when they get going and yeah. they just all jump. Right. They're like a swarm of locusts, you know. But yeah, and then we sat on we sat on a different table, and I remember you looking over like, oh, didn't you want to <laughs> sit with me? And I and I felt. And then I said afterwards, like, oh, I'm sorry we didn't sit with you. And you were like, oh, it's all right. But I knew that actually in that moment, I thought, oh, he would have been okay with it. And I wanted to say it was only that I was trying to protect you from my maniac children. Uh, well, I am so glad you brought that up because I've been carrying that resentment for months. <laughs> it's literally every time your name comes up, I'm like, fuck that guy and his yeah. kids. I knew, not sitting I with knew me I fucked lunch. it. I knew I fucked it. And then, you know. <laughs> no, it, it was fine. So like, where let's I like I didn't realize until I I kind of did uh, a little homework, but um, that you did a, not only with the musicianship, but it, like it seems to me that the acting, like it's something you always did was both of them, right? Yeah. I mean, you grew up in it. Well, how did yeah. like where do you where were you where are you from? <laughs> um, I'm from, you know, my, oh god, it's really complicated. We I grew up mostly in on the south coast in a little village. Uh, in in a county called Hampshire, which is like you know pretty but not much happening. Um, in England, in England, yeah. And then and then when I was about fourteen, my parents moved to a fishing village in in West Wales, um, to this rural, to this beautiful, yeah, coastal village. And um, and I worked on a fishing boat there growing Hold up. Hold on, I, so I, but you, where were you born though? Oh uh, well, I was born in South Africa. My dad was an actor. He was on tour with a play, and my mum, whose parents uh, had gone out to South Africa to be teachers, was living in South Africa. And she met my dad. They they got married. They had me. So your dad was on a tour in South Africa. Yeah, he was touring a play. Yeah. So was he a big actor? Well, he was kind of big in England at the time in the UK. He did a like stage actor. Stage and a bit of like he played Ivanhoe in a BBC thing of Ivanhoe. He was in um a Disney Doctor Sin sixties. Oh, okay. He did a lot of B movies and he did some okay. ha- Hammer movies and stuff. But he was like an RSC guy, you know, like a stage. Um, and yeah. he, and he yeah. sang. He sang and wrote songs. So he he had a similar dynamic to me. And he 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 often was in musicals and stuff in the days when musicals were kind of credit credible so your mom is south african yeah i mean she's born there yeah her parents uh were sort of british by descent but she was yeah yeah so when he so your dad lived there for a while when she was pregnant with you or he yeah. moved there they he moved there he just dropped everything he had um wow he must have really loved her i think he did <laughs> um <laughs> he did yeah he had a family he had three kids the youngest of which was um 16 so it was no small thing he left you know he went out um so he was married when he fell for your mom he was but they were sort of my understanding is that they were sort of separated that they okay they kind of gone their own way and she met somebody the first wife met somebody at the same time who was actually my dad's friend and we and i'm very i'm very close with them so my dad's not around anymore but my the, the first wife and 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 her partner they come to see me in plays and they you know i go and visit them they, we had christmas together it's really and you got a bunch of half brothers yeah yeah they're two half brothers and a half sister and they the, the brothers are both actors as well um, i looked up one of them one of them looked familiar he looked uh scary yeah he's at that one the scary one's in um 
more recently in Game of Thrones. But he was oh, okay. he was like an he was a nineties um he also weirdly had a kind of pop career in the nineties in the UK, accidental one, because he sang a song in a show that he was in and then he got offered money to put it out as a record. What's that guy's name? Jerome Flynn. My Jerome brother. Flynn. Yeah. So you're all a bunch of actors, singer guys. Yeah, kind of, but very you know, we don't we don't talk about it. And we're very different from each other. And then my sister is also an actor. I never know whether to say actor or actress. And she sings. And she's in my band. So she's on all the records and stuff and tours with me. And she has a great voice. And she's my full sister. Full sister. Right. Yeah, right, right younger right. sister, yeah. Okay, so you're growing up. You're, in, you're on the fishing boat. <laughs> yeah. How old are you on the fishing boat? 15, 16. Till, till so I was about not, 18. It, Oh, but so no, it's not, you it's know, not it's, a life decision in the holidays. It's just yeah. So, yeah. Oh right, you weren't yeah. wasn't a career choice. No, but I still think it was like the best job I ever had. Lifting, really? lifting lobster put. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it something so mystical and beautiful, and you know, simple in that exchange, and kind of weird as well. You're hauling something up from the. I still have this. I have a fixation with the sea. Um, a good one. I think so. <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, I'm terrified of it. Like, I mean, I, like you, you're about to say you don't know what's going to be in the cage. I'm like, yeah, exactly. I right. just assume there, there's massive monsters under the sea. And there they're are. generally, if, yeah, if I'm in the sea, they're, they're nearby in my mind. That we're just you know, a few feet away from some giant monster that uh, is going to reveal but itself. But wouldn't, you, wouldn't you rather that they were there than, than they're not there? Do you know what I mean? It feels like that's... Sure. That's... I just don't need to be near them. I, okay. I'm happy okay. the sea can be filled with monsters, which it is. <laughs> I have no problem with that, but I don't need to be swimming near them. Okay. That's my feeling. Yeah. On a boat, I'm okay. It's a live and let live. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah. I, there's, I don't want to... I, I don't need to kill the monster. Have you seen Have you seen uh, My Octopus Teacher on Netflix? Not yet. I watched a trailer for it. I feel like I got the idea. It's I got great. The idea. I do. It you, is great? I, th- I think it would crack open your heart it, yeah. it looked I, it seems sad to me i mean I, I, how much crying do i have to do what have the guy oh. the guy f- follows around an octopus and then it dies yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's it hole in one you did the trailer right <laughs> yeah you... i mean i hear it's good i'll i'll watch it eventually netflix should send so when, you all the all the shows for you to do the voice on the trailer so when do you um so like it, in this fishing village, is that where you start acting? When did you? When does that I, become part? No, of? I went. I went off to drama school uh, when I was eighteen, nineteen, maybe. Um, yeah, the way you know the, the the sort of traditional route in this country is if you want to be an actor, you you might go through university or just kind of get lucky or get spotted or whatever. But if you really are going for it, you go to drama school and it's like a vocational training, like a three year course. And um, it's really hard to get in. Yeah. You know, there's like, you know, 5,000 people, 10,000 people auditioning for, you know, 12 places or something. And I got into a good one. And um, I was always playing music. I was I was playing in bands at school and stuff. And then when I was in London at drama school, I started running a club night with a couple of friends, basically just so we could play, so we could put ourselves on to play. And we, we, we put on these gigs and we invited all our friends but early on, like, what was the music though? I mean, like, uh, were you in a rock band? Because like, it well, seems like, yeah, from the fr- in the first record, you know, it was you were doing kind of 
folky shit right away. Yeah. I mean, was that always a thing or did you did you start with rock and then move? I mean, I I grew up listening to a lot of punk music and a lot of like thrashy stuff and um I was always it wasn't that I was yeah, I think this is why it's quite difficult. I'm often kind of pinioned by the folk circuit and I get invited to play by folk, you know, festivals and things. And then the and then the traditional folk musicians often are like, "Who the fuck who the fuck are you kind of thing because i don't know all those hundreds of that still goes on oh yeah big that time. still happens they're in still the, in this country it's oh, huge really yeah it's it's big and it's coming back in a big big way what the folk is but folk into kind of mainstreamy sort of i mean there's a few there's a few i i find it i find it really i always hated being called folk cuz i it had this connotation of like um, I don't know, just something kind of really naff, and uh, I I liked people like Billy Bragg who were who were, who had that energy, and and they knew that the folk idiom was just a way of you know raging at the political system. So you're listening to punk rock, and then the first bands you're in, what mm. what's the angle? More Billy Bragg? Well, well, ba- the, the, what happened was um, around that time in 2004. 2005 when i first started playing out live when you're in drama school just yeah the coming out of drama coming out of drama school yeah so you're you're playing you're in drama school but you're also playing guitar at that point yeah and you've got guys you play with and you start to run a night where you guys can jam what do you what are you guys mostly playing i mean it's more like rock rock band stuff then it's like kind of right, jam right, band, rock band, right? Jam band, yeah. Good. So, so then you're going <laughs> to drama school and now. In drama school, in drama school, what do you do? Like, you, what's the program? You learning Shakespeare? Is that what you do? Yeah. And like, because this is like, a, it's basically high school, correct? Or no? No, or it's, it's, like it's college. college. It's college. Yeah, it's after high school. Yeah, it's it's university okay. college. Yeah, and um, and the training it, is mostly Shakespeare. It's a you have a Shakespeare class. You do a lot of Shakespeare plays, but you do. Um, movement and like it's kind of a bit wanky it's a bit it's a bit up itself because you're everybody takes themselves very seriously there's this whole kind of concept of um there's a there's a cliche about breaking you down and and uh you do acting exercises where you stare into a mirror for 10 hours and you know you you do trust exercises and all this kind of stuff oh you do that kind of stuff along with the classical stuff yeah yeah and then and then classical stuff and i think the english sort of theater sensibility is that that stuff is intertwined and if you're really rebellious then you're reading books i was reading um interviews with stella adler and and like that's you know sure that's kind of even though that's like 50 years ago that's avant-garde in in like english drama schools and um, they're they're not they're they don't do the they're not method they're they're more classical not, not so much yeah they and they're quite proud of that as well they think that that's the the route generally but we also had some interesting directors who'd come in they would expose us to these kind of uh individual you know minds and uh creatives who would just do their thing and um and that was cool I don't know. It's a way of becoming like people proof. You're, you're like in a theater company where every week you're doing a different play and rap kind of thing at the end. And then, right. yeah. And I was running club, I was running the club nights and I was playing, I was busking sometimes on the South Bank, like in London, you know, just going down with my guitar. I was running, running everywhere with a guitar on my back 
and and going from somebody's house to play this jam to do this thing was it was it always the plan though was it there wasn't it, both of them kind of ran equal with you music and acting it wasn't like you know you were doing the acting but you wanted to do more music they were just sort of both what you did because it seems that way yeah at that point i didn't really believe that i would make it in either thing so it was like working really hard <laughs> yeah. both and um I really wanted to take acting seriously because I'd been a music scholar at school, which meant that I'd been playing a lot of classical music. So I had a good sort of good chops for like theory and I I played violin and stuff like that. Oh, you can read music and play violin? Yeah. Is that you playing the violin on those early records? Yeah. There's some wild, weird violin. Oh, and there's some cello as well that's quite out there as well. That's not me. The cello's not me. Cello's not me. Some some out there cello. cello. Where'd you... Where'd you pull the outdoor the out there cello from? Like uh, John uh, John Cale? That was John Cale was an inspiration for that stuff. And like Warren Ellis, the way Warren Ellis plays with the bads. You know, I wanted to. I I wanted to have. Anyway, you don't want to get to that first sound yet, but I wanted to mix loads of things together. Basically, I wanted to have. Well, that's well, that's the thing that I notice is that like, and I'm kind of curious about the folk, uh, you know, real folk fake folk war because out of nowhere like a few months ago i got i got turned on to the incredible string band oh yeah and and i didn't i didn't know their shit i didn't right. know anything about them right you know right. i was going through this book of like the hundred you know essential rock records you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and and i have most of them and the ones i don't have i don't like yeah. so but there was the incredible string band. I'm like, I know nothing about these guys. Yeah. So I I bought one record. Uh, you know, I got it wasn't even the the farmer's daughter, the hangman's daughter record. It was um, maybe the first record I got hold the, of their the first cir- album. The circle is unbroken or something. No. The very first one, yeah. yeah. And I was like, it might it might be self titled, and and I was like, holy shit. What mm. the fuck is this? Yeah, and then I got this the second record or the fa- the five thousand layers of the whatever. Yeah, of that the that right. I think that's the best one. Yeah, I that's mean, great. The the hangman's daughter is good, but I think that the layers yeah, of whatever that's, that's, that's my favorite. So, in answer to your question, I discovered that stuff like sort of early sixties. I I suddenly discovered like uh, like Fairport Convention and the Incredible String Band and a lot of those early island record things and the stuff Pentangle that, Pentangle yeah and I was like this is really cool it's got such a thing and it's so rooted in my own um, tradition you know my my right uh, Gaelic this is, roots this is, this is my inheritance you know this is yeah <laughs> yeah and um, and I read I read this interview with with um, uh, Fairport Convention because I loved I loved Richard Thompson I love this album. He's Rich- insane! I know that guy. He's like he's the he's so good. He's amazing. Yeah, I interviewed him, and then by coincidence, he was playing the night before I played in Dublin, and I was got there and I was all jet lagged and turned inside out. But I went down to the venue because he was playing there, and I had just interviewed him a few weeks before, so he actually knew me. He had a frame for me. Oh, cool! And I was able to hang out with him backstage, but I'd never seen him live before. And man, he can he can turn a guitar inside out, dude. Yeah, well, he that it's his it's his um, picking style that I copied. Right, that's what I went for. Right. And that album, um, the, Liege and Leaf. 
yeah well legion leaf that was that was huge for me but the the stuff he did with his um now ex-wife with linda oh richard and linda albums yeah the best man they're so good and and i the i all of i mean i know that that stuff's all quite spread out but when hearing that stuff you go this is rooted in something that i have a right to play you know these songs are influenced by um uh, certain scales that are in my idiom you know they're in, just in my bones through my you know where i'm from and, and i grew up playing where, in like, where, where but where exactly well, Br- just, britain or, or ireland well, Brit- or what yeah i might you know my dad was sort of irish but yeah my 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 grandfather uh, my mum's dad was scottish my mum's mum was welsh right and my m- dad's mum was was a cockney like a proper kind of londoner and so you you just you felt like it was you know it was uh, historically appropriate in that you know you lived and breathed this stuff somewhere through your I genetics. I was looking for some authenticity, some sense of belonging, right. and and I'd been yeah. the big thing. I said I listened to a lot of punk and stuff growing up, but the big thing for me was Dylan, like huge. Like yeah. I'm still he's I'm a disciple of Dylan, and and everything that that led me to you know whether it's like the paul busfield well, he's, blues he's, he's band a, or he's a he's a jew from minnesota but okay no you can that's re- what i mean but i'm like <laughs> i i want to i want to go as deep as that but i can't i can't just rip off dylan so i have to be who i am and then i <laughs> he found ripped that, off everybody if I you know. ripped off dylan I've you've since, been ripping off every- <laughs> i've since figured that out but but that, isn't that beautiful? That's I amazing. It. It's it's cool. Yeah. And Bowie was the same. He he just smashed all these things together, and and it was sure. and it became its own unique thing. Right. And that's the story that we told, which is cool. Just just to yeah. round back to that to bring it back. So it was really it was the kind of those um, those kind of psych folk and uh, rock folk bands of the yeah. mid to late sixties that kind of blew you away. I could see that man because I'd never heard. You know, I just got a Pentangle record, and I and I I found them. I thought they would be a little boring, but I I just got my first Pentangle record after ha- getting all of the fucking incredible string band records, and they're equally as yeah. uh, uh, as interesting because the way that the thing I liked about the incredible string band is that they were using bizarro instruments, you know, international instruments, but they weren't showcasing them. They were just integrating them. Everything sort of had balance. It wasn't like look, it's not like Brian Jones on the sit. It was like they honored the sound and integrated it into something that felt very loose, but had a lot of space to it, but hung together so beautifully. It was almost like each one of those records is some sort of, you know, kind of miracle of unity. I don't know how they do it, but it doesn't feel like they, it sounded a lot of times like they were really playing all at once and there wasn't much uh, separation. Yeah. I, 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 oh man, when I, when I first heard the, I've I've had like spiritual experiences listening to the Incredible String Band. It feels like like an acid right. trip w- without taking right. acid. It feels like it's that lo- what you just said. It's the looseness and and they're just yeah. It's like their hearts are like searching for something together. It's like so it's exquisite and um it's crazy. I, man. Yeah, I mean not not just that. Oh, you have to read um this book White Bicycles, Joe Boyd who produced them. I have them. it, I have it. It's really good, but it tells the story of when he when he discovered them and, 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 and recorded Nick Drake and all those guys. It's a really... And his first job was he, he was the tour manager for... When he was like 20, 
he took um like uh, Reverend Gary Davis and Rosetta Tharp and all the and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee all around Europe as the manager of this blues train uh, tour and he's and he can't keep them together wow. and they're all like fighting and it's really cool wow i um, gotta read it I've, it's been sitting on my bed table forever it's great all right so so now you've you've put together this this is what you've decided your legacy is you know you've mashed up your brain with uh fairport and thompson and and uh entangle <laughs> and incredible string band and dylan and then you but what what sort of comes first for you? I mean, where how how do you decide? Because it seems like you started doing some you know some television you know before yeah. the the yeah. records, right? I, there was a point early on where I you know I was really passionate about being an actor and I wanted to work in like new writing theater. I wanted to work at the Royal Court uh, Theater, which is like a political. It's a writers theater. They just have the writer's name on the in in the headlights and and. Uh, I worked, I, I was, I, in fact, I was an usher at this place called The Bush, which is like a, a was a room above a pub. And I I saw these amazing little studio play. It's a bit like the old days of Steppenwolf. Or, a little black or, box. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of theater that you feel is changing the world, you know, one one mind at a time kind of yeah. thing. Changing the world with a, an audience <laughs> of seven yeah. at a time. Yeah. Yeah, not even sometimes. <laughs> Tuesday <Yeah>. nights, <laughs> just three. Yeah, um, but you know, I got out of college, and of course, you know, I, and I got an agent, and they're very sweet. But they, you know, I was I was being sent up for these things that I I would get on a TV show or something, and realize that this isn't where my heart is. This isn't what I want to do, and I couldn't get a job in those places that I wanted wanted to work. And so I, and then I, and then I put more into the music because it was, and I, I would use, I would get a TV job and I would use the money to pay my band so that I could well, just interesting. do the music. It seems fortunate that, you know, cause you're, you know, you're 20 years younger than me. So, you know, and you're liking a lot of the things that I liked, which was, you know, be, before my time as well, even the sixties was before my time that we all are sort of in lost in this wave of all that stuff that was done before us. But but you're lucky that you romanticize this stuff because it seems that, you know, whether or not that theater that you wanted to be part of was actually changing minds or not. And I had the same thing. You're like, this stuff is is deep. It's making a difference. <laughs> but just, just whether it was or it wasn't or whether you know, or not, you know, that that sort of sentiment has repeated itself with young performers. It did enable you to have some sense of personal integrity around knowing what you didn't want to do and, and yeah. kind of can compelled you out of you know like i'll do the tv gig but i'll funnel the money into something that i have complete control over yeah. in terms of my expressing uh my creativity absolutely yeah i mean i'm i i i i still believe you i think you, I, I think you know look at the velvet underground you know that's the, the the one that everyone quotes like you know the band that only 100 people um uh, right, bought records from, and then and then now you know, and now every band you know, and it all bleeds down. I just sure. think, I think when you really invest in stuff with integrity, it, it pays dividends. Like on a global scale, even if you only play that show for three people or whatever, it. I don't know. I just, I think if you apply that to everything, sure, I think that's true, and and I and I I think that yeah, sure, I've definitely done my share of shows for nobody, and uh, I think if anything, it does uh, kind of harden your resolve around what you're doing and and make you better 
Mm. Um, and then, yeah, you know, there's always going to be like one or two people that are like, do you remember that night when yeah. you performed for four people and that one guy threw something at you? I'm like, yeah. oh, fuck. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, that was the best show I ever saw. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, glad you were one of the four that saw it. Yeah. But, but when you're going back and doing the music, I mean, you decide, were you writing songs just on the guitar and then, you know, kind of building them out? It's hard to describe what, what I was doing. I was like... I was just kind of doodling all the time. I was, I was, a lot of what I did was, was lyrically based. You know, I was, I started, yeah. I started, um, I had lots of notebooks and all those years of being a student and being in London and being broke and being on tour right. and, and, and stuff, you know, I just, it was my way of processing things. I never kept a diary, but I would get on the, and we, we've got a, a, tube it doesn't actually go in a circle anymore but you used to be able to go on the tube and go in a circle and just stay on yeah. the, stay on the line and i would get on in the morning and and i would get off at four in the afternoon and and just go round and round and and i just was a, a a way of processing you know seeing faces and i was scribbling my notebook if i didn't have anything to do yeah and or i'd ride on the bus and i i don't know i i i think i have add and i think that's kind of thing suits me very well just i i digest the world and it comes out in lyrics and in little melodies right. and stuff i'd be yeah. walking around you know when you're i don't know just always humming little tunes and um i'd have to run home and you know it's before like iphones and stuff so i'd have to sure to find and then i would find go through i had hundreds of notebooks i'd go through the notebooks and match the right lyric to the right melody and it was like a jigsaw puzzle for me um and I was listening to so much music and collecting music because it was all still kind of CDs and stuff, you know, yeah, al- yeah, almost. It was that verge of, I really hated when the digital thing came in because I, I was so proud of these boxes of CDs that I would carry around. <laughs> um, I spent years. That, you know. And now you don't even know where they are. Fuck. I got a fucking, I got hundreds of CDs. I'm not even sure where they are. Oh man. But now I got the record thing going, which is out of fucking control. I like I like my records, yeah. I have. I, I love it. Yeah, I've been buying old Fleetwood Mac records. I I wrote off Fleetwood Mac. I was just like, oh, they're the, um, you know, it's the Stevie Nicks thing. I don't. And I I fucking changed your mind. You were the you were the gospel, the gospel of Mark. <laughs> so um, now you got all those Peter Green records. I do, and they sound so good on the on the vinyl. I have, yeah. Do you know you know that song? I think I played it for you, man. Have you listened to that? You know, um, jumping, jumping at shadows. shadows. Yeah. Oh my god! I was listening I listened to, it to the original one. Did you know that the, like the guy who wrote it was kind of a a, a a British, kind of an odd British performer? And I I just I just now I forget the guy's name now. Do you know it? No. Hold no, on, hold on. Because he's like a, he's kind of his own weirdo. But there's a it's um, the, there's a live version that's really that's the best. It's, it's the only one there is. Yeah. But the guy's name is um, Duster Bennett. Right. And I went out and got a Duster Bennett down. record. He's kind of like this dude. He's almost like a one man band guy. And the weird thing about him, I think you know John Mayall produced him. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, he was a virtuosic chord. He he played. He's like a one man band. Wow. Uh, in this, and he he plays a guitar, drums, and harmonica, and it's his song, dude. And like, if you listen to this, it's one of those moments you're going to listen to it, and you're like, oh my god, P- 
Peter Green fucking guy, lifted this guy's vocal styling. Right. Like, okay. you know, this, I don't yeah. know, I don't know what this guy was or what place he had in the world. <laughs> Sounds but he's like clearly, Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. Right. But it was, but, but, you know, it was like, um, you, you'll, you'll see it. Like, you're like, who was this weirdo? And I don't know much about him, but I know that Jimmy Vivino said it's a Duster Bennett song. And then I went and got some Duster Bennett music and he's like totally his own thing, but you can completely hear his total influence on Peter Green. Okay, cool. I'm going to check D- it out. Dust- I, um... Duster Bennett, dude. You're going to wow. be like, oh my God. You changed my life again. <laughs> well, I, t- I just found it, man. I don't know why it took me so long to check it out because I just love the song. Oh, so cool. I wanted to hear what the original thing sounded like. I don't think it, there there is no studio version of that, uh, of, of Fleetwood Mac doing it. Right. Is there? I haven't I, found no, one. I, the, I think it's, it's only the live one that, I'm, that I right. know of. Yeah. That guitar solo, man. Jesus. Yeah. No, he's great. And B.B. King said he's the only only one the only white guy yeah, that, <laughs> that, that made him weep to. yeah that made him yeah. cry um so like how do you feel about shakespeare you good with it do you get yeah i mean like you, you did you do a lot of shakespeare i love shakespeare yeah i did a lot i did um uh yeah early on i did that tour when i was right it was kind of writing the first album the finger picking tour yeah the finger picky tour and and i um i loved it because i I, I say I was bored. I was never really bored. It was it was like I was the youngest one. It was all male, done not you know kind of modern dress, but like we were like a traveling troupe in in the manner yeah. of an old uh, Elizabethan all male troupe, and uh, we went all around the world. We were in New York and the old Vic in London, and Hong Kong, Australia, and we were like, and they were quite they were wild. These guys, they were like the wildest you know bunch of guys i've ever met and 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 uh really fun yeah it was really fun rogues i nearly died um but it was it i loved how'd you nearly die from boozing yeah they just yeah i won't go into details they played they played hard and they they were putting you through your paces yeah they were like let's see what this kid's made out of i found some pictures I found some pictures yeah. of that tour recently and I thought, fuck, if anyone sees these, they're just like, it It was really, it was quite debauched, but like, not not in a um, morally bankrupt way, just, just you know. No, I get it. Like, yeah, and you, it, the funny thing is, it's like, you know, you, you could have ended up one of them and I you know. didn't. <laughs> no, but they, they, I, I'm, I know some of them still, they're really, anyway, I can't. But then I, I'm not and, saying they're bad guys, Johnny. But you know what I'm saying. It's like you know, you get taken through the paces, and either you you're going to get a a monkey on your back or you're not. You there's yeah, <laughs> higher higher ambitions, my friend. Well, they yeah, the boozing and the English theatre thing is quite a quite a you know they they go hand in hand. They they have bars in the old rep companies. They have they have bars in the in the side of the stage. You used to be able to go and get sure. a pint while you wait for your cue or whatever. And, Anyway, they were straight out of that canon. Um, and then I, at the end of that tour, I got I got a record deal. I was in New York. I got this call and um, Universal uh, wanted to sign me for a five album deal to Mercury, which is the same label I just realized. That, that I worked for in the movie. That Bowie, yeah, that you worked yeah. for. So I was signed to Mercury for one album 
And then they they promised me the world, and then they took it away. And um, they were they were really uh, cowardly. Actually, they were kind of. They, so you was, did the you did the first album with them, Alarum. Yeah, I did that album. I think they were a bit shocked at how much I went into the <laughs> the the oldie fo- folky thing. They were like, uh-huh. "Where's the drums and the radio hits? You Where's know? the pop song?" Yeah. Um. So that. But also, it was the 2008 crash, and uh, the the downloads was killing the industry, and and also Razorlight was the big out band on the re- on the label, and they bombed their last album, bombed. So they were like, having said, you know, you're a, you're a career artist, you could do whatever you want. They said, okay, now give us five radio hits. Uh, here's you know five thousand pounds. You have to demo five radio surefire you know A class bangers. Otherwise you're you're out. And I and I I think I just handed in like the sound of like dogs farting like on purpose. I just got out of the deal basically. Rebel, fuck yeah. you, man. I'm not playing your game. <laughs> it didn't suit me, and I just I just was like very. Yeah. happy it was a very uncomfortable thing for me actually i mean you know me i'm i'm kind of shy and i and i felt like they were pushing something that i wasn't happy with and i don't know i don't know what they wanted from me i just anyway but how did that record do the first record well it sold considering there were no record sales at the time it sold like i don't know what the sales are now but in that first year it did like fifty thousand or something it was pretty good and we was we were on. I was yeah. the only Brit signed to Lost Highway in the states, which is you know Johnny Cash and Hank Williams and everything. That was a big kick uh-huh. for me, coming to Nashville wow. for the first time and um, going into those offices and and. Um, but anyway, I always felt like a bit of a an imposter, not an imposter, but just like, what am I doing? You know, like I should just be playing the small club. You know, just I, I don't know, like. It's always been pushed too hard, um, and I and I think I said yes. But you to became things. very popular, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I think I, if I if I was popular, I think it was because I was honest or trying to be honest all the time. Like, and that was what mattered to me. I didn't want to sell any bullshit. And ironically, if you're popular because of that, then you know, pretty soon you're going to be having, you, you, you know, you can't see the people that you're trying to be honest to. And then, and then, you know, there's nothing else to do, but to sell bullshit. So it becomes vacuous. You know, if you go out and play, if you, if you, if you're that ver- person and you want to play in clubs for 20 people, but you a get sell out and you get put on a support tour for 50,000 people or whatever, it's not right. You know, not, not necessarily. Did, but did you? Did, you didn't do. But you didn't do that. You didn't go out. Of we the did. No, we act? we we did a little bit. We did a bit of that. And some of our friends were with being who? picked up um, with like Mumford and Sons and people like that. Because it feels to me that that was like the world that enabled, you know, the type of music you were doing to find some sort of um, public following. Was that there was that kind of like mm. folky singer songwritery, many people on stage with yeah. many different country <laughs> instruments. Yeah, but doing you know, things. It, it didn't. When we started doing it, I know this is, sounds you know like I'm trying to claim it or something, but there wasn't there wasn't anyone doing it. Weirdly, it was the way to go because it was rebellious to 
to you know it was the it was the, the end yeah the existing pop music yeah there was it was the end of that what they called the new rock revolution like the strokes and the the highs right. and all that stuff and 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 me and my friends were putting on these club nights and we we felt like i don't know we wanted to be original and so the way to be original was to to get your acoustic guitar and go, go that back. way go back yeah and then you know, you know, Mumford and those guys are really sweet. And the, but first time we came to America, they were supporting uh, me and Laura Marling. And then they, because of the formula of their music and just how it connects to people, that it, it went huge. And they, and then they would invite us on tours. So people always affiliated us. But actually, we, you know, we were sort of around. Their record came out around the time our second record came out, kind of thing. Um, the Mumford record, yeah. But they, with the other ones, aren't there? Are the Lubinaires? Are they another one of that type of thing? I've seen they're American. They're um, in fact the I think guy later. The guy who produced our first record did that big hit for them. Um, that we did. For the we Lubinaires? made. Yeah, we made our first record in Seattle um, and our second record with an American producer. Because I was, I, th- I think, you know, I wanted some of the energy of that like grunge thing you know the purity of right that and like i was in love with the the pixies and their their melodies and the chord changes i wanted to see what would happen if you put that in the voice of a cello and a guitar and a thing well it seems like you know between shakespeare and uh fairport convention and incredible string band and (laughs) the pixies and bob dylan like you're very you're sort of hyper aware of what of what you dig but like i noticed that there was sort of an evolution of production and sound going on throughout the four or five records you know as they evolved yeah. i mean you kept to the core you kept to the core of who you are in terms of writing and some of the instruments but there was definitely a shift in you know guitar tone and the number of instruments and and certainly the the production became more defined as you went on yeah. were there were there were there hits um no, I mean we're not a hit, but you know that's just not something that I'm striving for. But I, it's weird. But I mean, well, sometimes it happens, pal. Yeah, you know. Well, we have, I, yeah, we've, we've, I've had, I suppose. Oh, I get a bit like awkward talking about it, but we, you know, that certain songs have become like radio favorites. Like every the other day, oh, I was, good. I was in the kitchen and so I wrote, I wrote a song which was used for the theme tune for a, a show which was popular here called the D- Detectorists. And I, yeah. and I wrote this song and, and it, and it was, and it's played on the radio like all the time. And ev- maybe once or twice a week, somebody will come up to me or, or tap me on the sh- shoulder or, or write to me online and say, we're getting married in a week. You know, uh, can you come and sing the song or we're going to play the song? <laughs> anyway. How often do you go to get, do a wedding and do the song? Never, never. <laughs> I feel like that's a floodgate. I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> But you, I wanted you. You also said something that stuck with me when we were working together, which was I was like I was a bit washed up with playing live at the time, and I was telling you about it, and you were like, "It's really simple. Just do something new every time." Do you remember that? You said, "Do yeah. something that scares you," and you said that every time you you're working, you're doing a movie in a different town or whatever, you book into the local comedy store and. Right. You do you do a bit and um yeah. And since then I've always, you know, on whatever it is, I just and also I say yes to things that I know will fucking terrify me. I was scared to come on the 
this, by the way, because I'm a fan of the okay. show and, right. you know. But I just, I'm now into doing shit that scares me. And it's because of you. So that's cool. Does, and how is it working for you? It's brilliant. My my parameter, you know, yeah. my, I'm living on a different scale of, you know, I know that the worst that can happen is I, I freak out and it's not so bad. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, the, and also it puts you into a, a sort of present. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, you know, you can, it, there, there's a response you get to stuff that you've polished that's like rewarding, but to sort of step out there, you know, and being the type of guy you are with you know, the sort of desire for authenticity that there are those moments where you take those kind of chances and the, the, it's a much different experience in terms of how you connect, Yeah, you know, and, and how it connects to you. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you're, you know, you, well, good, man. Well, that's good. You do, you're riffing. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah man thanks for that but alongside i mean there there it seems to me that you are known as a as a pretty uh, significant actor as well i mean it seems like you know like my manager one of my managers kelly she's a huge fan of your, your music and i hadn't even when i took the gig for stardust i didn't know you or your music right and she's like a, a huge fan that's cool and i didn't even know that existed so so <laughs> but but it just means that you have a very uh, you know, a, a large and dedicated fan base that, that isn't, it's con- completely based on the, the the sort of authenticity of your output, not because you're some sort of weird overproduced hit machine, right? Yeah. But it also seems that, you know, as an actor, you get a lot of credit as well. Uh, so that's sort of, in terms of evolving that alongside of the music, I mean, how how were you conscious of that process? How did you re-engage and, and you know, transcend the, the sort of... Uh, ennui or anger towards commercial acting gigs um what what happened was i went off and did that you know when 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 i got offered the record deal after the theater tour and i'd done a couple of yeah you know tv you know felt i did a movie and i think none of it was um particularly satisfying for my soul and then and 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 i got the deal and then i was like right this is what I'm doing. And I, and I, I tried to kind of resign as an actor. I wrote to my agents. I was like, I'm, I'm being, I'm being a musician now. And <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. And then, cause I, I just, I, I can't do it with any distraction or I'm giving it everything. I want to be right. I want my, you know, the music bleeding fingers. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. I did it for, for, for like four, four years or five, you know, we we did two records and we taught i was like on tour solidly uh and making the records and we went all over the world and we had an amazing time and my band it felt like you know we spent we were you know you have to work so fucking hard as a band starting out you know we we were in a bus together driving ourselves sometimes when we went to america we'd all be in like one car you know with the drums like this um yeah and driving coast to coast we did that like eight times you know and and then it was amazing but i was so exhausted and um i needed i was like i miss i still had that inclination to tell really good stories you know and I loved doing theater, especially. And then out of the blue, I got... A, and also you had a family, right? By this point, didn't you want to stay home? And- no, I was, well, I was about to have a, I was about to have a kid. I didn't have a kid yet. Oh. I was, I was oh, with, okay. on and off, on and off with my now wife, 
you know, being you know mid twenties, and then and then I got an offer from the Royal Court, which is this theatre that I was telling you about that I wanted to work at, and it's the only place I yeah. ever wanted to work. And they 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 gave me a great job um, in a play with Juliet Stevenson uh, called The Heretic, and and I and then and then my wife got pregnant, and it's such a small theatre that there's no understudies, and they were like you know the baby's the baby was due in the last week and you have to sign this contract so you are on stage every night no matter what and um so i had to agree with her that that i would potentially miss the the birth of the baby anyway i did the job and i didn't miss the baby you made it for the birth i made it for the birth but then okay so the stage so the shift to to the acting was primarily you know you you started a family you were exhausted from you know touring too much and you got a great opportunity with a a, a theater that you respected and from there it just kind of grew out i guess huh kept going yeah and at that point i was i guess you know being offered the kind of jobs that i always wanted to do and it was a lucky it was a lucky thing. I got to a place where I was like, well, it's either going to happen or it's not. And it kept happening. And, um, so you got opportunities to do, to do more Shakespeare and then the movies. And I guess that movie beast is the one that really was a huge deal. Yeah, people right? like that film. I think it was because, yeah, I don't know. It was J- Jesse was amazing. who was in it with me. And it was this director, Michael Pierce. He'd spent about 10 years developing the story. And anyway, yeah, stuff, shit like that. That, that was, this is what I dreamt of all along. I think, it was because I looked too young when I was 24 to play anything interesting. I, I looked like a 15-year-old. Ah. So I, I had to look like a 25-year-old as a 30-year-old, and then it got well, now you're, good again. Well, it seems like you're, you know, you're aging well. you got a nice family going. I was excited to do the movie with you. I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that uh, it's coming out. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that the, the fucking the trolls have stuck. They're all watching the election now. They stopped. It'll, it'll, you know what? It's like, it doesn't matter. You know, they, you, you know, it was, it, it, it ultimately, and you know, I got to be honest with you. A lot of them will see it. Yeah. You know, it's it just, it, they're not going to be able to help themselves. Yeah. So fuck them. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. But I also, I just, the thing I want is because the trailer and maybe the name, Starred, I don't want the people to have the wrong impression. Like the trailer sets it up like it's this big bombastic, you know, accompaniment. It's a bad trailer, and and the music, none of that. That music's not in our movie. Yeah, but also like it's just that people are missing the idea that it's just it's a small story about a guy wrestling with some demons. You know, try afraid of becoming like his his uh, mentally ill brother and and trying to sort of uh, figure out who he is. I mean, it's yeah. really, that's what it's about. Yeah. It's not like some big Bowie biopic. But look, once it gets reviewed and once people see it, you know, that, that word will get out. And I'll try to make that clear tonight when I do Fallon. Cool, man. Yeah, nice one. Um, oh, it's really good to see you. Great to see you too, man. Yeah, keep in touch. All right, buddy. I'm going to send you, you or I'm going to send you some of the new, new stuff I've been doing. It's completely different. It's not. It's not the oldie folky stuff. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> More tone. God, is this the new Load, tone loads freak? Of, loads uh, of tone. Johnny Flint. Loads of tone. Okay, yeah. buddy. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, lots of love. Talk to you Thanks, later. Mark. Bye. All right, there you go. That was Johnny. Johnny, who texted me after that, he said he he didn't like his interview. He thought he he was waffly, waffly. 
<laughs> Maybe he was. I don't know. But I think that's just the way he is. And also, uh, the movie that Johnny and I are in, Stardust, opens this Wednesday, November 25th. I would see it. Even if you're a Bowie fan. People are liking it. And now I will play a beautifully distorted, slower, instrumental version of uh, a song that I wrote and I played for you last week, but it's a work in progress. I'm done. And this, uh, I'm just trying to evolve it and maybe uh, I'll get into a, get in the studio with it when I write a couple other songs. But whatever. This is just it's a different approach to it. No singing. Just the slow, grumbly tube sustain of a couple of P90s. Okay. La Fonda! 